We note with sadness as we come back the silencing of that wonderful voice in that wonderful song, Linger. Dolores O'Riordan, the lead singer of the alt-rock band The Cranberries, passed away last month. She joined The Cranberries when she was just 18, and Linger was the first song she wrote for the group. Well, The Cranberries would go on to sell 40 million records worldwide, Dolores O'Riordan struggled to balance her success with some mental health problems, which included anorexia and bipolar disorder. We are sorry that she is gone, but are so grateful for the fact that we will still have that marvelous voice to listen to. What a great way to remember her. Now, we're pretty heavy in the last segment. Let's see if we can make things a little bit lighter uh, this go-around. Um, and at this point, let's go to the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, and God bless The Week magazine, anyone who wants to produce a weekly radio program, it was a good week last week for targeted marketing with the news that a California Girl Scout managed to sell 300 boxes of Girl Scout cookies in only six hours by positioning herself outside a San Diego marijuana dispensary. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for the South rising again <laughs> with the news that Virginia's King's Dominion Amusement Park is changing the name of its roller coaster, which was named for a Confederate battle cry. The park's flagship ride, the Rebel Yell, will now be known as Race 75. Asked if the change was prompted by the controversy... Currently raging over Confederate monuments, a park official said, we're constantly evaluating elements of the park. Now, I want to say, Radio Parallax in no way advocates the cause of the Confederacy in the Civil War. We support none of the tenets it embraced. That said, Racer 75 stinks as a name. We think we could live with the rebel yell. And it was an ugly week last week for American exceptionalism with the news, or the rather confirmation from the White House, that President Trump has in fact ordered the Pentagon to organize a large-scale parade of military hardware down Pennsylvania Avenue later this year with tanks, missiles, and marching soldiers. Now, of course, every year in front of the Kremlin, the Russians hold such a parade. Coincidence? And we're happy to provide a little bit of follow-up on that story uh, of a week or two ago about the camel beauty pageant in Saudi Arabia where uh, people were busted for using Botox. 
Yes, evidently the King Abdulaziz Camel Festival ran all the way through January. It too featured parades and also races and and what was described as the all-important beauty contest. New Scientist magazine explains that apparently to be in vogue in, in the camel beauty contest, your camel needs to have a long head, pert ears, and a droopy pout. Reported the magazine, breeders have moved from traditional methods, like tugging on the camel's lip daily, to cosmetic surgery, collagen fillers, and yes, Botox. The editors of Feedback at New Scientist say they worry that these primped and plucked specimens are setting unrealistic beauty standards for the camel on the street. And in what is surely a classic good news, bad news story, we have this. The good news is New Zealand has now joined the space age. It can count itself as, I think it's the 13th space-faring nation. That's good, I suppose. Except we have the bad news part, which is what the New Zealanders decided to launch into space. As we understand it, the New Zealand-based firm Rocket Lab has revealed that it secretly launched a disco ball into space. Yes, as it orbits the Earth, the meter-wide humanity star will shimmer visibly to those below. Yes, said the editors and new scientists, nothing says togetherness quite like a unilateral PR stunt carried out in secret. As you might imagine, astronomers are not pleased. Now, luckily for astronomers, this satellite is doomed by orbital decay, and it supposedly will survive only nine months aloft before it meets a fiery death in the upper atmosphere, no doubt cheered on by exasperated astronomers. And, and yes, we understand Elon Musk has launched his private car into solar orbit, which we think might make a convincing case for the fact that some people just have too much money and time on their hands. And as someone we hope is going to have a lot of free time on his hands is Jacob Zuma, who we understand just yesterday resigned as president of South Africa. Zuma was, and presumably still is, battling nearly 800 counts of corruption charges, including those related to an arms deal back in the 1990s, and charges that he allowed the Guptas, an Indian-born family of tycoons, to wield undue influence over his government. And uh, another piece of follow-up here from the International Idiocy Department comes the news that uh, a wave of nationalism is engulfing Greece. As previously reported, when the Republic of Macedonia broke away from Yugoslavia in 1991, Greece immediately objected to the inclusion of Macedonia in its new northern neighbor's name. Greeks argued that using Macedonia implied that this country of two million people had a territorial claim to the region to the north of Greece that bears the same name. They claimed that by conceding the name, they'd be giving up ownership of one of Greece's greatest heroes, Alexander the Great who was son of Philip of Macedon, after which he was Alexander of Macedon before he moved south and became Alexander the Great by, first of all, conquering Greece. As part of a compromise, the new Balkan nation joined the UN in 1993 under the name of Former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, 
But one by one, other countries have dropped those other first two words and now just call it the Republic of Macedonia. Apparently, when the news of this got out, 90,000 furious Greeks marched to the port city of Thessalonica, waving banners, reading, There's only one Macedonia, and it is Greek. Radio Parallax poses the question, if we could just get 90,000 more Greeks to pay their taxes, they might not be in such dire financial straits. And, you know, we're not sure which side of the border, Greek or Macedonia, that Philip and uh, Alexander occupied back in the day, but we're going to find out. And from the international goofball file, we have this. Apparently, ordinary Russians rushed to the defense of a group of air cadets who've been threatened with punishment for making a viral homoerotic spoof music video. Evidently, it's a hit on YouTube. It shows male students at the Olenovsk Institute of Civil Aviation dancing and gyrating through their dorm to DJ Benny Benassi's club hit Satisfaction while they're wearing only their underwear and cadet caps. When this video became, I would say, rather unexpected internet sensation, Russian officials threatened the boys with expulsion, and state TV said they could be prosecuted under anti-gay laws. Fortunately, Russians have rallied to support the cadets with nurses, athletes, firefighters, and even senior citizens recording and uploading their own versions of the video. We do want to add that while Radio Parallax sympathizes with these cadets' right to make a spoof video, we are making no plans to upload our own video of the same nature. We do add that uh, in the wake of the backlash, the Institute's rector has said it's unlikely anybody's going to get expelled. And speaking of goofball, how about this goofball example of sexism? Maybe you caught this last week, but we only just found out about this. But evidently, the Internet kind of went haywire a week ago after the chief executive of PepsiCo, Indra Nuyi, suggested in an interview that the company was considering creating Doritos for women with, quote, reduced crunch and less orange finger dust, unquote. In what's described as an off-the-cuff remark, Nuyi at some point explained that women do not eat Doritos the same way men do, saying ladies, quote, don't like to crunch too loudly in public, unquote, or she said, quote, lick their fingers generously, unquote. As a result, PepsiCo was exploring snacks that are designed and packaged differently because women love to carry a snack in their purse, she said. PepsiCo has now officially backtracked and said it was all a misunderstanding. They say Doritos for women already exist. They're called Doritos. Since we've fallen into stories out of left field, let's do one more. As you are probably aware, in the wake of the sexual harassment scandals surrounding Kevin Spacey. All of the scenes he shot for the movie All the Money in the World had to be reshot with a new actor. And the responsibility to fill Spacey's shoes fell to Christopher Plummer, who, according to the Daily Telegraph, is evidently the man Hollywood calls in an emergency. Now, when uh, Plummer was called upon uh, last year to, uh, to reshoot uh, the role of J. Paul Getty. He uh, wound up reshooting all of Kevin Spacey's 22 scenes in just nine days. When he got the word that he was needed, he reportedly put down the phone, packed a suitcase, and a few days later was shooting scenes. 
He admits that memorizing the lines was quite a chore in that short a space of time. But surprisingly, this isn't the first time the veteran actor had come to the rescue. Back in 1967, he was reportedly enjoying several nights of heavy drinking with Rex Harrison at the actor's Italian villa when Harrison came home and announced he'd walked off the set of Dr. Doolittle. Plummer's agent wound up calling him and saying, how would you like to replace him? And Plummer signed up, said Christopher Plummer. And the minute Rex heard I was doing it, he said, it's okay, I'm coming back now. To which he added, I got paid my full salary for doing absolutely bugger all. Must say I've been resisting the clickbait that keeps popping up uh, whenever I go onto Facebook, alluding to how Christopher Plummer didn't get along with Julie Andrews, but so far I've resisted. And uh, although I can't say that I'm a fan particularly of, of that epic musical, The Sound of Music, I did get a chance to see Christopher Plummer live on stage in San Francisco in the role of Barrymore playing the legendary Hollywood drunk and esteemed actor John Barrymore, to which I can happily report he was, he was pretty damn good. And speaking of actors, the former lead actor of the TV program The Apprentice, currently portraying the role of President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, as you knew he would, claimed that his State of the Union address last month had the highest ratings ever. It, in fact, came in fifth. Now, some weeks back, Radio Parallax repeated the assertion made elsewhere, probably in a lot of places, that uh, Donald Trump was likely, or at least his people, were likely to opt for the O.J. Simpson defense in terms of this Russian investigation, which is based on the idea that that when the evidence is pretty strong against you, you better put your accusers on trial. In this case, the accusers are the FBI and the Department of Justice. And rather astoundingly, the GOP, the party of law and order, uh, is buying into this idea that (laughs) the Department of Justice and FBI are on a witch hunt against the president. According to a poll conducted by Axios slash SurveyMonkey, just 38% of Republicans approve of the FBI. 47% have an unfavorable view. This compares to 64% of Democrats and 49% of independents who say they have a favorable view. Holy mackerel. And uh, evidently, day before yesterday, Trump's lawyer has admitted that out of his own pocket, he paid porn star Stormy Daniels hush money on Trump's behalf. Well, he didn't call it hush money, but it's not what it was. Now, we can't say that we know too much about Stormy Daniels, but we do have to laugh at anyone who would launch a burlesque tour titled Make America Horny Again. And it's with some regret that I do have to set the record straight on a minor point concerning Trump. You've been hearing that Merced Representative Devin Nunez has been secretly working on Trump's behalf as head of the Intelligence Committee to leak a cherry-picked document that, um, well, supposedly favors the president. Uh, You've heard him in the media described as Devin Nunez, which is how you would pronounce his name if he were of Spanish ancestry. Unfortunately, he is, like myself, of Portuguese ancestry, and the correct pronunciation of his name is Nunes. In case you're keeping score a couple weeks back, Mr. Nunes made public a memo from the committee, which is something that's 
not usually done, that accused Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and other officials of misleading judges in order to obtain a warrant to surveil former Trump campaign aide Carter Page. Its key claim was that allegations in the Steele dossier, which is supposedly a piece of, quote, opposition research, unquote, paid for by the Democrats, formed an essential part of the application for the FISA court, and that the FBI didn't reveal the dossier's partisan origins, which sounds like a pretty weak claim to us. In response, Trump tweeted that the memo totally vindicates him and proves that the Russian investigation is a witch hunt. But it's been noted that after the memo got released, Nunes was forced to conclude that the FISA application had, in fact, included a footnote explaining that some of the information came from partisan sources. Democrats also noted that Carter Page first came on the FBI's radar when Russian spies tried to recruit him back in 2013, and that the FBI began its Russian investigation three months before obtaining that Steele dossier. The New York Times went on to note that we have no idea how big a part that dossier played in that FISA approval because that memo didn't say what other evidence was presented. It also managed to omit the fact that the court issued three separate renewals for the surveillance of Carter Page, each of which required new evidence, which strongly suggests that he was a valid target. Now, who the hell's Carter Page? Thanks to the summary in the week, we can shed some light on that. Tim McCarthy, writing in TheGuardian.com, said he's a mysterious aide who just won't go away. An odd, vehemently pro-Kremlin former Trump campaign advisor, Carter Page triggered the FBI surveillance that's at the center of the Noons memo, as we just said. Now, before joining Trump's campaign team, Page, age 47, spent years in Moscow as an investment banker. He was also an advisor to the state oil firm Gazprom. By 2013, he was back in New York in his new office next to Trump Towers, according to Luke Harding writing in Politico.com. And that year, 2013, a Russian spy working in New York tried to recruit Page. In recorded conversations, Viktor Podobnia told a fellow agent that Page was an idiot, but that it's obvious he wants to earn loads of money. Podobnia said he would feed the American energy consultant empty promises, pledging to push generous contracts his way in exchange for valuable information. Page communicated with Podobnia for months, later telling the FBI he didn't realize the Russian was a spy. Writing in the WashingtonExaminer.com, Byron York says, fast forward to March 2016, when presidential candidate Donald Trump announced that Carter Page, Ph.D., was joining his new foreign policy advisory panel. By July, Page was off to Moscow on a campaign-approved trip, officially there to give a pro-Russia speech, but in his now famous dossier, former British spy Christopher Steele claims that Page also met with Putin crony Igor Sechnin, head of Russia's state-owned oil company Rosneft, and that Sechin offered Page and or other Trump associates millions of dollars in exchange for ending U.S. sanctions against Russia. When the news of Page's Russian connections went public in September before the election, the Trump campaign cast Page out. A month later, the FBI put him under surveillance as part of its growing Russia investigation. 
Writing in Vox.com, Andrew Prokop said, Given the unflattering attention he's received, you'd think Page would be hiding with his lawyers. But the eccentric Russophile has spent the last year making nonstop media appearances and testifying in front of the House Intelligence Committee members for hours without a lawyer, frequently complaining about his supposed persecution by the Clinton-slash-Obama-slash-Comey regime. When the Noons memo was released, Page took a victory lap, texting a reporter it was a giant, historic leap in the repair of American democracy. To which we say, well, maybe not. Now, I'm not an economist, that's for damn sure. But, um, you know, like everybody else, I try and gather useful information about the world, relying upon economic data, which is probably a huge mistake because we subscribe to The Economist and use it on a regular basis for this program. I get sent uh, The World in Review every uh, January 1st or so, in which The Economist gives the world in numbers, showing the GDP growth of various nations. Now, if The Economist is to be believed, apparently uh, the world GDP is growing in Middle East slash North Africa at 3%, Sub-Saharan Africa 3%, and Asia 5.1%, with nobody else in the whole rest of the world earning as much as 2.5%. So that must mean things are pretty good in those places, right? GDP, great way to measure, you know, quality of life. Oh, and by the way, according to the New York Times, for the first time since the financial crisis back in 2008, all the world's major economies are growing. The U.S., the world's largest economy, is in its ninth year of growth with an expansion rate of 2.3%. The European Union grew at 2.2%. China, 6.6%. Japan, one4 Yeah, we wonder whether the world's going to grow its way right into oblivion and would cite a very curious little article in New Scientist, the February 10th issue in the News and Technology section titled Modern Society Looks Unworkable. Article by Andy Coughlin notes that no country manages to live well. Of 151 nations that have just been raided, not one achieves the Goldilocks feat of doing it just right, creating a good life for its inhabitants without overusing natural resources. Yes, unlike using GDP numbers, these folks are trying to assess good and bad for real. The world's worst plunders by the study conducted were the rich nations. Countries like the U.S. offer their citizens good lives, but they break environmental limits. Meanwhile, poorer countries like Vietnam overuse fewer resources but don't meet all the well-being targets for their people. So Daniel O'Neill at the University of Leeds in the UK and colleagues rated each country's sustainability by toting up how it used, produced, and affected seven things. Water, phosphorus, nitrogen, CO2, emissions, land use change, ecological footprint, and material consumption. The team also used 11 measures to assess whether citizens had good lives. Some were basic needs or expectations, like nutrition, sanitation, access to energy, and long life expectancy. The others reflected social stability, income, education, equality, social support, environmental prospects, quality of democracy, and overall life satisfaction. An ideal, an ideal country would score zero for resource overshoot and 11 for citizen well-being. Yes, note, this one goes to 11. But seriously, by this scheme, everyone's needs would be met and no natural resources would be destroyed. 
They note that rich countries like the U.S., the U.K., and Australia overshoot their limits to feed their lifestyles. The U.S. transgresses all seven planetary boundary indicators, but it does score relatively highly on the social thresholds, achieving nine out of 11. The U.K. broke five boundaries, but reached eight of its social targets. It did note, sadly, that South Africa breaches the same natural boundaries as the U.K., five, but achieved only one social target, that of nutrition. It was described as a dysfunctional over-consumer because its consumption doesn't seem to result in a better life. They note that some poor countries like Malawi and Senegal keep within planetary boundaries but reach none of the social thresholds. A few countries are better at balancing well-being and sustainability. These included Sri Lanka, which breaches no natural limits, Vietnam, and Moldova. However, none met all of the well-being targets. Anyway, the punchline to all this, I guess, is the analysis provides a critical reminder of the tremendous challenge facing humanity. That's a quote from Johann Rolkström of Stockholm University, saying, We can no longer pretend that simply letting the market decide what is best for us will lead to anything but disaster. Well, we can't speak to how well this study was conducted, but good Lord, it is time we started evaluating things based on something other than GDP. And even though we're cynical about economic data, let's close with three pieces of it. First, U.S. crude oil production this year is set to exceed the output of Saudi Arabia for the first time in the modern era, thanks largely to fracking. Output is expected to climb above 10.4 million barrels a day in 2018, topping the U.S. high set in 1970. Only Russia is producing more at a rate of approximately 11 million barrels per day. I don't know. Our position is that if oil production is up and prices are down and consumption's increasing, and we're doing it all by fracking our way through all of the, uh, the rock strata in the country, this is probably not going to pan out well. Item two, foreign tourists to the... Item two, foreign tourism to the U.S. is declining as other nations come to see the U.S. as hostile to visitors. Tourist spending in the U.S. dropped 3.3% last year. And finally, while it's true that more than 3.2 million Americans contributed money to federal candidates in the 2016 elections, it turns out that 50% of the total funds came from 0.5% of the contributors. That's it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. But your love won't pay my bills. I want money.